it's time to let it roll. Or should we say, it's time to introduce our new Best of Let It Roll miniseries, Three Kings of American 20th Century Pop, Bing, Frank, and Elvis. Nate has long said that Let It Roll is a great big jigsaw puzzle where we are collecting pieces that will ultimately fit into the big picture. But other than extended miniseries like Edward's History of Rock and Roll, the eight-part country series with James Porter, the Holy Roll series, the Hip Hop and Metal Evolution series, or the three-part Techno Roll series, we've not been putting them into any kind of order. That changes now. We are reassembling six sets of discussions we've had the pleasure of featuring on Let It Roll into a special mini-series focused on the three kings of mid-20th century American popular music, Bing Crosby, Frank Sinatra, and Elvis Presley. Obviously, these were all white men, and they each had many African-American, Latin, and female peers and rivals who matched or exceeded their aesthetic triumphs. However, mid-20th century America was a very racist country and did not allow people of color or women the same opportunities extended to white males like Bing, Frank, and Elvis. Each of these three performers enjoyed immense success as performing musicians, as broadcast stars on radio and later television, and ultimately, each achieved massive popular success as a star of Hollywood movies. This series will feature two conversations between Nate and Bing Crosby biographer Gary Giddens about his, so far, two-volume biography of Crosby, Bing Crosby, A Pocket Full of Dreams, The Early Years, 1903-1940, and Bing Crosby, Swinging on a Star, The War Years, 1940-1946. Both of those interviews were conducted and released in 2020. Next, we'll feature Nate's two 2021 conversations with Frank Sinatra biographer James Kaplan discussing his masterful two-part Sinatra biography, Frank, The Voice, and Sinatra, The Chairman. Finally, we'll conclude the series with his two 2020 conversations with Gurdip Ladar and Justin Gausman of the wonderful TCB cast, an unofficial Elvis Presley fan podcast, who joined Nate for a two-part discussion of Peter Guralnik's pair of Elvis biographies, Last Train to Memphis, The Rise of Elvis Presley, and Careless Love, The Unmaking of Elvis Presley, as well as Elvis Presley, The Searcher, the 2018 HBO film, co-edited, co-produced, and directed by Tom Zimney. We're excited to present these conversations in a sequence that should reveal a great deal more about each of the three artists discussed by allowing listeners to compare and contrast each of the artists, their era, and their individual triumphs and failures in a context of American popular culture history. Each of these men reached almost unimaginable pinnacles of fame and cultural power and each of them bore that burden with varying degrees of success that led to triumph and disaster. Bing Crosby became one of the cultural leaders of America during World War II, helping FDR shape the nation into a more egalitarian united force whose diversity became its secret weapon against fascism. 
Frank Sinatra found himself playing a key role in the campaign to elect JFK, and some of those decisions connected the Kennedys and the Chicago outfit, the CIA, and the Cuban revolutionary government in ways that would end in disaster for the whole country. Elvis Presley played an immense and positive role, helping reinforce the efforts of the civil rights movement to integrate the country by leading with a great example of open-minded and open-eared color-conscious model of musical appreciation, appropriation, and celebration that under the visionary guidance of Sam Phillips of Sun Records, changed the country permanently and for the better. But in the 1960s, under the direction of the much more cynical and jaded Colonel Tom Parker, Elvis froze into a caricature of the all-American boy of the early 1960s and spent the rest of his life struggling and straining to break out of the straitjacket and bring his power to bear where needed in the turbulent late 1960s and early 1970s ultimately fading and falling in Graceland in 1977. We'll be hearing these stories in full from some of the most passionate and knowledgeable experts in the space. So pop on those earbuds and enjoy. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, electronic dance music, and heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, ragtime, Latin music, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at letterrollpodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. Thanks to our very generous listeners, we've raised enough money to pay for a full year's worth of production and recording work of this show. That's 104 episodes. Thank you all so very much. Today, we're kicking off a special six-part mini-series about the three kings of mid-century American pop, Bing Crosby, Frank Sinatra, and Elvis Presley. We kick off the series with a rebroadcast of Nate's 2020 interview with Crosby biographer Gary Giddens discussing his first of two books on Bing, Bing Crosby, A Pocketful of Dreams, the early years, 1903 to 1940, with a new introduction that reveals the master plan behind the miniseries. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today I'm joined by Gary Giddens, author of Bing Crosby, A Pocketful of Dreams, The Early Years, 1903 to 1940, and Bing Crosby, Swinging on a Star, The War Years, 1940 to 1946. Gary, welcome. Thank you, Nate. Good to be here. And so this is a mammoth undertaking because Bing Crosby is a mammoth figure. This guy was an enormous star from 1934 to 1954, and he was a big, and he was a star from 1927 to his death in 1977. 
What inspired you to tackle a project this massive? Well, it, it, I didn't anticipate it uh, taking uh, 25 years of my life uh, and, and counting. Uh, what happened was I had done a short biography of Louis Armstrong called Satchmo, and uh, that was published uh, by Doubleday in, uh, I think, 1987 or 8. And uh, my editor, <coughs> excuse me, uh, at the time, uh, asked me if I would, uh, he thought that there was a, a market for a biography of Bing Crosby. And he asked me to do it many times over the next year or two. And I, I just said, Paul, I'm not interested. I'm, I'm going to do, I had something else that I wanted to do. And, uh, it, this went on for a while. And every once in a while he'd call up and say, well, I think I've got somebody so-and-so interested in doing Crosby, you know, thinking that would, uh, make me competitive. And I would say, great. Cause I really, you know, I loved Bing's Jazz recordings, I'd lived with them forever. Um, didn't really know the films very well. Didn't even know the F Father O'Malley movies. Wasn't that interested in his later work. Um, so then what happened was I was, I was going to do Ellington. And uh, my agent uh, got a letter that uh, the Ellington estate had uh, given all of its uh, papers to the Smithsonian to inventory and that they would be uh, boy, uh, embargoed for three years. Well, that took the wind out of my sails. And my agent said, look, uh, Paul wants you to do Crosby. I think I can get you a good advance. You'll do it in three years, just a 300-page book, and then we'll be ready to go. <laughs> back to Ellington. <laughs> so I, I agreed. The money was good. I, 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 but then I realized something, you know, there's one thing to do a short, a brief life, but if you're going to do a biography, you can't rush it. You can't, there are no shortcuts. You either do it right or, or you don't do it. And, uh, at first I had read, uh, there was a terrible book that came out called the hollow man, which was a real hatchet job. But I, you know, it didn't have anything about his music, but I thought as a portrait of him, for all I knew, it could be true. And then I read Gary Crosby's book and, you know, I didn't know any better than that. So the theme that I was developing was that this guy was, you know, behind closed doors, something of a monster, but that to the public, he was the soul of warmth. And, and all this time now, I'm listening to everything I can find of his. I mean, I insist when I tackle a book to get every single record he ever made and, and, and every film that took a couple of years to do. And uh, the more I'm getting into it, uh, the more I'm admiring him. And then I started to do, I had, I put in calls to do interviews, uh, which is a whole other thing because I had never really gone into the Hollywood world. Anyway, I made my first trip out to Hollywood and I, and I had done about 10 or 12 interviews and there was a guy at the Disney studio who was doing a documentary on Crosby and he had been very helpful and, and we had been talking. So I called him up one night and I said, am I talking to the wrong people? Because the Crosby I'm getting from all these people is the greatest leading man I ever worked with, the nicest, the kindest, the most generous, the most helpful. You know, Roy, Roy, uh, I remember Ray Walson telling me a story that he said, there was no other actor who was more generous to other actors than Crosby. And, uh, you know, you have to go with your research. So once I started really digging in, I found out things about Crosby I had no idea about. I had always heard that he was a Republican, which he was, but I had no idea how good he was on, uh, how ahead of the curve he was on civil rights, which is the most important issue to me.
me. Um, he was really great. I had no idea how close he was to Armstrong. I had no idea of his influence on technology. The fact that he was the first guy to take the microphone out of the radio and put it on a stand and use it as an instrument on stage. The fact that he was the first guy to finance uh, tape and a tape-based studio. And, uh, and of course, I had no idea of how how extraordinary and really heroic he was during the Second World War, because he never talked about it. It doesn't, it gets half, literally half a sentence in his memoir, Call Me Lucky. He thought it was, he thought it was, uh, you know, a terrible thing to try to promote that or to, or to, you know, these men gave up their lives and he, he just, you know, unlike Bob Hope, who did it all his life, everybody knew about Hope entertaining the troops, but nobody knew about uh, the extent of uh, Crosby's work. And the more I got into it, the more I thought, this man is really, uh, he is a man of parts. And I became absolutely fascinated by his influence on, on popular singing, which I had underestimated as much as I loved the early recordings. I hadn't quite realized um, the, the degree of their importance and influence. I mean, the fact that Armstrong was, you know, covering Crosby at the same time that Crosby was covering him. And, and it was really Crosby who got Armstrong to, you know, look more closely at the Tin Pan Alley ballad repertory. And, and, uh, when you, when you matched up Crosby early recordings, you know, in a discography with Armstrong's, my God, it's like they were talking to each other through their record sessions. When you get to, got to cross uh, to Armstrong's, I'm confessing, and he puts in these Irish upper mordens that are strictly Bing, you know, you can't, you, you laugh out loud. And so, uh, the years went by and, uh, Finally, I said, look, uh, I have a book here, but it's just volume one. And they were freaked out. And in fact, the publisher demanded their advance back, wouldn't go with it. But another publisher, Little Brown, took it. And uh, my editor there, Sarah Crichton, loved what I had done. And and the book uh, got a lot of attention. Um, but the second book took me much longer um, than I anticipated, in part because it took many, many years for me to figure out how to deal with the war. And it wasn't until about four or five years ago that I discovered Crosby's uh, journal of that period. And that made the whole book come to life for me. And it's, it's incredible stuff. And I was, you know, vaguely aware of, I mean, I was aware of Bing Crosby and I was vaguely aware that he had been an important pioneer in popular popularizing jazz and of course, I knew the road movies, and I knew the the Bing and Bob Bob Hope show from TV in my earliest years. But these books really hammer home what an enormous influence he was on American music. And the bit with the microphone is absolutely essential, and the magnetic tape is essential. And in some ways, it seems to me like he. You you bring it home. I mean, being born in 1903, Bing Crosby was the first generation that was raised on recorded music. And there's That's a point right. in there where you describe how his generation reacted to music, and it made me feel like there's a commonality between that first generation of the 20th century that suddenly got recorded music in their hands and and access theoretically, you know, to for the first time they can access music from from a distance and through time. And now we've got a new generation that's coming along with access to seemingly everything ever recorded. And there are certain commonalities. How did that explode? But there's an essential difference there. Now we have everything. 
and everything can be really confusing and too much, then they had very little. So every record was precious, and every record was a mystery until you put it on and played it. I mean, Crosby would go to, you know, in those days, record stores had listening booths, and uh, because the records were expensive, and you might listen to four or five records before you said, ah, oh, this is the one I'm going to take. And uh, Crosby listened to everything. He listened to Irish balladeers. He listened to Al Jolson. He listened to whatever jazz bands he could find. And believe me, they weren't the good ones because they were the the white North Western bands. They weren't, you know, you couldn't get hold out there necessarily of King Oliver. Well, this is way before King Oliver even recorded. So uh, mostly he was hearing dance bands that were calling themselves jazz, like Art Hickman or Paul Whiteman, but would, would had very little jazz spice to them. So the, the, I think the difference is more important than the commonality, because Crosby and Armstrong both had no prejudices about what was hip and what wasn't, and what was cool and what was not. You know, I, I remember uh, when I was growing up, and certainly watching my daughter when she was growing up, that, uh, you know, people would rate you, whether you could be in their crowd or not, by what you listened to. And they didn't feel that way. They, they thought the fun of it was just to hear everything. And he not only heard Jolson on record, but he actually got to see Jolson live at the peak of Jolson's powers. Well, Jolson came to Spokane, as you say, at the peak of his powers, and uh, Bing, I think, was 13 at the time, and he got a job, uh, you know, manipulating the ropes for the curtain backstage. And uh, I don't think he actually met Jolson, or at least I don't think he got to talk to him. I think he would have been a little afraid of that. But he saw him every single performance he gave, and it was jaw-dropping for him. I mean, he just had never experienced anything like it. Now, remember, this is a guy from the wrong side of the tracks in an Irish Catholic community, and this Jewish performer comes from Broadway with a whole different approach, and he loved that as much as he loved John McCormick's Irish ballads, and when he started, you know, and when he heard Armstrong, that was, like, unbelievable to him. So he was open to everything, and, and he assimilated it, but what I find most remarkable about Crosby, and this is detailed to some degree in, in the Pocketful of Dreams book, when I when I talk about the early recordings, I'll say, well, in these measures, you can, you can hear Jolson there, you can hear Armstrong here, but it's only for a couple of measures, because being as, from the very first time he records Muddy Water in 1926, he's, he's an original. You always know it's Crosby. His his approach, his, his way he deals with rhythm, his, his you know everything about him. He has that security, but at the same time, he's open to everything that's going on, and so he's the ultimate mainstreamer and popularizer because people just trust his taste. And uh, and he he can you know Roy Rogers said to me, the cowboy actor that it was Bing who who made everybody realize that you could be a a Western singer and have a great beautiful voice. He, he said before Crosby, all the cowboy singers thought they had to sound like Gabby Hayes with gravel in their throats. And let's hear a little bit of Muddy Water. This is Bing Crosby with the Rhythm Boys, his partners, uh, who sang as part as a subset of the Paul Whiteman Orchestra. This is Paul Whiteman Muddy and the Rhythm Boys, Muddy Water. Just God's own shelter Down on the delta Muddy water in my shoe Rockin' through those low-down blues They live in ease and comfort down there I declare 
and away a year today to wander and roam. I don't care, it's muddy there, but still it's my home. Got my toes turned Dixie way round that delta left. And that was Bing Crosby's recording debut on Muddy Water. Tell us a little bit about the there was one. Voice. There was one earlier recording for a tiny uh, label in California, but it's it's perfectly awful. <laughs> and, and yeah, I was Not very little even. known at the time. But tell us a little bit about the Rhythm Boys and how uh, Bing Crosby and Al Rinker got together in Spokane, moved the way down the coast, and were discovered by Paul Whiteman. Well, Al was quite a bit younger than... Uh, than Crosby. You know, when you get into your 40s and 50s, three or four years don't mean a goddamn thing. But uh, when you're in high school and college, then, you know, if you're in college, the high school kids are kids. So uh, Rinker had a, a little band at his high school and he lost his drummer. And somebody said that there's a guy, you know, here at Gonzaga who's really good. So uh, Bing was in his senior year, he was studying law at Gonzaga, and uh, they Rinker invited him to his house, and the band, uh, <coughs> excuse me, they uh, tried a couple of numbers, and and they thought Bing was terrific on the drums, and Bing then turned to his kit and brought out a little tiny megaphone and said, I like, I sing too. So uh, once they heard him, they were like bowled over, and, and he soon realized he was making more money with the band than he was uh, uh, clerking in a law office, so he quit he quit in his last year just months before he would have graduated and uh and then the band broke up because all those they were high school kids and they were going off to college so there was no more band but rinker didn't want to do anything but music so uh rinker was still 17 bing was in his uh, uh like 22 or 3 and uh so they had to have his parents uh sign for him eventually when when they went with Whiteman but the first thing that happened was they they chipped in and bought a, a ragged model T and Al's sister was the great the great Mildred Bailey one of the most important jazz singers of all time at that time completely unknown they were uh, part uh, Choctaw Indian and uh, part Irish that all but they lived on the reservation and and Mildred had gone down to uh, Hollywood, to uh, California and was working in speakeasies and frankly one of them was really a whorehouse uh, in the Hollywood Hills uh, uh, where all the big movie stars would go to you know where they could drink and and partake of the women or whatever. Mildred was strictly there for entertainment. And uh, she would sing, and she 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 built up an audience there. And so Crosby and Rinka, without telling her, just decided, well, let's drive to, to L.A., and we'll see my sister Millie, and maybe she could help us get a gig. So they do that. Um, it's a sort of long story drive with the car breaking down every 50 yards. But they finally arrive. Uh, they ditch the Model T, and they ring her doorbell, and she She's wonderful. She invites them in. She listens to their act. She says, you guys are great. But she tells Bing to park his drums in the basement. <laughs> and that's where they remain forever. <laughs> and uh, and she, she, she recommended some auditions. And they must have been pretty damn good because every place they auditioned, they got a, you know, a job. And so they started working on the, uh, the California um, vaudeville uh, uh, route. 
Uh, they never got out of California, but uh, Paul Whiteman, who was the biggest thing in show business at that time, uh, had the most successful band, uh, million-selling records routinely, uh, already a, a legendary force. Uh, he had been called the king of jazz primarily uh, because he had a, a very popular dance band and because he premiered the Rhapsody blue and and that was considered jazz by a lot of people back in 1924 but after 1924 he had heard armstrong would come to new york later that year to play with fletcher henderson who was a friend of whiteman's everything was completely segregated all the greatest black musicians were with henderson and the greatest white musicians were with whiteman and and whiteman said this is ridiculous and he wanted to hire some black musicians and and uh you know the, his management said you can't do that not only will we not be able to work the South, but these guys won't be able to walk in the front doors of the hotels we play. They'll have to walk through the back. They won't be able to eat in the same restaurants. That's how bad the scene was. And Whiteman said, okay, if I can't have black musicians on the stage, nobody can stop me from hiring them as arrangers. Um, and he did. He he helped to make the early career of the great composer William Grant Still. He had Fats Waller arrangements. He had, he, he had advice from people like Fletcher Henderson and Ubi Blake. And eventually he decided he was going to hire real jazz musicians, the best white musicians there were. And the, fir the first ones that he hired as ironically were the singers, uh, Crosby and Rinker, um, which he he sort of was going to use as a, 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 a you know a, an act to spell the musicians. They'd come out. Al would sit at the piano. Bing, they would do a duet. But he was also going to have Bing sing because he could really swing and he had this fantastic baritone. Whereas in those days. Most of the male singers were tenors because the tenors sounded better on acoustical recording. But 1926, everything starts to switch to electrical recording, much more nuance. So uh, it, it, he tells them to meet him in Chicago on a certain date. They finish their contractual obligations in California, and then they take the train to Chicago, and everything's going great. And they have several stops as the band travels to New York. Everything's good. And then they get to New York, and the audience can't stand them. I mean, they, first of all, they couldn't hear them because nothing was mic'd, and uh, they just didn't understand what he was, what Crosby was doing. And so uh, Whiteman had no choice. He was going. He was thinking about firing them, but he he kept. He he had a nightclub gig, and he'd use them in that. And then uh, a series of circumstances, Bing and Al were introduced to Harry Barris, who was a very hot performer in New York at the time. He also he played piano. He was a better pianist than Rinker, and he had a kind of very jazzy, you know, quality about him. He wasn't really a jazz singer or a jazz pianist, but he would. It, it, people who are listening to this who know the movie Showboat, the 1936 movie, there's a fabulous scene in it where where Harry Barris accompanies uh, Helen Morgan, and uh, you really get a sense of what he was like. Well, anyway, Barris was a very talented songwriter. He wrote Mississippi Mud. He wrote Wrap Your Troubles in Dreams, I Surrender, Dear, which were among Crosby's two biggest hits. And uh, they get together and they make an arrangement of Mississippi Mud. And they're very excited. Whiteman can't believe his ears because this is really something new. And the three of them together have so much pizzazz. And he puts them on the stage and they kill. And then the Rhythm Boys became like 
the hottest thing going in New York in the in the Prohibition era. They became uh, very much in demand, and they started appearing routinely on Whiteman's recordings. Although his best ranger, Bill Chalice. Uh, preferred to have Crosby solo whenever he could. Now, in those days, the singer would sing one chorus, you know, the, it was mostly instrumental, um, but Crosby would nail these choruses, and, and suddenly he started getting written about in England because uh, there were critics over there who said, who would have thought that the best jazz singer uh, that would finally arrive on records would be a white guy? Uh, and with Paul Whiteman. And so uh, everything began to change. And of course, eventually they left Whiteman and, and went on their own. And while he was with Whiteman, he meets a pair of Italian jazz musicians, Eddie Lang and Joe Venuti, who yes. are incredibly important. Eddie Lang, widely considered to be the first jazz guitarist before Django Reinhardt, before Charlie Christian, before. West Montgomery and Joe yes, Venuti, but, it's a total inspiration for what Django Reinhardt and Stephanie Grappelli do later. Well, yes, there was one other great guitarist uh, who was a contemporary of Eddie Lang and they loved each other. And Lonnie he was a Johnson. black guitarist named Lonnie Johnson. Yeah, and they duetted together. And they made duets together, but they couldn't record under their own names because that would be integrating and everybody knew who Lang was. So he recorded under the pseudonym Blind Man Dunn. And, but they loved working together, and Lang had been on Ellington uh, Records. He had a very important part on a couple of Armstrong Records. Um, and uh, eventually he became a, a big rhythm and blues star in the 40s and was still performing as a blues uh, singer well into the 60s. But um, Lang was the more virtuoso guitar player, the more, in, in a sense, that he was much more uh, jazz dedicated. And uh, Lang became Bing's uh, confederate and his intimate. Uh, he's the one, he probably got closer to Bing than anyone ever did, any, any male friend anyway. And they traveled together, and, and, and his, uh, Lang's wife and Bing's wife uh, became the closest. Of, they, were, they remained friends for life. Um, and then, as you mentioned, Joe Venuti was the great jazz violinist of that era. He influenced everybody that came after him. I got to know Joe uh, back in the 70s. Uh, I, I wrote liner notes for him and actually appeared on television once interviewing him. But um, th these were extraordinary musicians, and they were stars in their own right with Whiteman and, and as a duet. They made many, many records for Columbia. And uh, Venuti remained a friend with Crosby for decades. But, Bing, but uh, after Bing made his first movie, which has a scene with Eddie Lang, you only see him from the back accompanying Bing, uh, Bing said, the next film, you have to have a, a speaking part. And uh, he had some problems with his uh, voice at the time, and he was recommended to get a tonsillectomy. And, and Bing said, you know, it's a nothing thing. Get it, and then meet me in Hollywood, and we'll start doing this film. And they butchered him on the table. Um, he started to hemorrhage. He bled to death. And it was really not until uh, after my first volume came out that uh, a, a doctor who was also a jazz fan really did some investigation and and. and concluded, as Lang's widow had, that they had basically, he had hemorrhaged and they, and they ignored him. They just left him there to bleed out. And uh, so we lost one of the real geniuses of that period when he was in his 20s. And Bing Crosby lost his best friend. And let's hear their chemistry. This is After You've Gone. 
with Bing Crosby with Eddie Lang on guitar. After you've gone, let me cry. After you've gone, there's no denying. You'll feel blue, you'll feel sad. You'll miss the dearest pal you ever had. There'll come a time, now don't forget it. There'll come a time when you'll regret it. Someday when you grow lonely, your heart will break like mine and you'll want me only. After you've gone, after you've gone away. That was After You've Gone with Bing Crosby accompanied by Eddie Lang, his best friend, uh, and as close to a soulmate as he ever had. Uh, and and Lang dies at age 30. Tragically, just as Bing has, I guess they had about a year and a half together at the beginning of Bing's solo career. But, mm-hmm. but now Bing is on his own, and his relationship with another man takes precedence. And this is Jack Cap, who uh, becomes the head of the founder of American Decca Records, but he wasn't with Decca when he first started working with Bing. Tell us a little bit about Jack Cap and how he guided Bing through the 30s and, and beyond. Well, Cap came from Chicago and he was uh, sort of famous in the rec- in the early burgeoning record industry as a guy he owned a record store and he when he started uh, recording uh, he mostly became involved with Brunswick and uh, he had a memory and uh, file cards on every distributor he ever spoke to every everyone he ever every store he ever sold a record to and everybody knew him and he knew how to promote the material and uh, uh, the Brunswick records with Crosby were very successful. He recorded everybody. He recorded Duke Ellington. He, re- he had an incredible catalog. And then, uh, you know, with the Depression, uh, the record industry died. It just folded up. The only uh, uh, company that really survived was RCA, and that was only because uh, RCA owned it was NBC. They had a radio station. Um, CBS did not have a record label at that time. Columbia Records, which was well-established, went bankrupt and was was put into a holding company. Almost all of the labels were putting into holding companies, and frankly, none of them thought that the record industry would ever bounce back because their hated rival radio was offering music for free. So why was why were people going to buy these discs? And then something amazing happened. Um, uh, several things, actually. First of all, the big band era started, and that created a music boom that we hadn't seen in this country since before the Depression, since the you know days of Whiteman in, in the 20s. And uh, uh, everybody wanted to, to have the latest uh, Benny Goodman and Count Basie and Glenn Miller, what have you, recording. Ellington started making some of the, the greatest recordings of his career in 1939 to 1943. And then at the same time that the big band era comes along, Crosby really hits his peak because he becomes an enormous film star. And in 1935, he takes over the Kraft Music Hall and becomes the most popular variety performer on the air. So uh, people want to buy the Crosby record. So Jack Cap makes a deal with uh, Sir Edward Lewis, uh, who owned uh, the Decca Company in London. And uh, they really, all he had with Bing was a handshake. And Bing was now being offered big money from every label that was uh, CBS finally bought Columbia Records so that they could be or have a rival to uh, RCA and uh, um, uh, with that ha- handshake that he had with Crosby uh, he was able to get the financing and they started deck in 1934 um, that the war you know 
Cap believed that the wor- the best time to start a new company is what everybody thinks is the worst time. You know, when when the fi- the depression is at its peak, and because he he knows it's going to turn around, and the, the, all your costs are going to obviously be less when nobody has any money. And not only that, but then he decided that records were too expensive, and he was going to make his records uh, less than half price. Uh, for years, there was a thing about Decca. Decca was the one company that was priced in many stores as three for a dollar. So a lot of families would, you know, they'd walk into a store and say, or send the kid over and say, bring back three Decca, three Deccas. But did you go in and say, what are the latest Decca recordings? And you just choose three. They were buying the label. This was the first time this ever happened instead of the artists because of the, well, because they were great artists on DECA, but because also the, the price change was dramatic. So uh, with all this going on, uh, DECA, uh, of course, breaks through and immediately becomes the third uh, major player in the industry, along with uh, Columbia and RCA. And Cap also changes Crosby's music. He pulls him away from the jazzier stuff. And, yes, and Cap's, to... Cap's wife, Frida, said to me, his widow, Frida, said to me, uh, Jack said, I'm going to take away his bubba babu And she said he did. Um, he convinced Bing that if he kept singing the way, you know, the jazz style and this very mannered way he had with ballads, which was so popular then, that only the hipsters would care. And in a few years, taste would change, and the jazz people would be very happy. He said, but but you can do everything. You can, you can still do the jazz records once in a while, but we also do mainstream. We can do patriotic songs. We can do 19th century songs. We can do Irish ballads. We can do cowboy songs. We can do Hawaiian songs. He said, you can be the great minstrel of the 20th century. You have that kind of voice and versatility. And Crosby was very uh, cynical about it. I mean, in fact, in his very first session, uh, Cap gave him these two unbelievably corny records by Carrie Jacobs Bond written in the early part of the century. Hardly anybody could have gotten away with I mean, you can't even imagine Sinatra attempting to sing them. And they were hits. Crosby knew how to make them work. He knew how to make nostalgic records and, and you know, Americana seem relevant again. He he knew how to sing Stephen Foster. Um, and uh, as a result, Bing became the everyman singer. And, and in the course of that, his style got moderated. For one thing, the the nodes that he had that gave his voice a sort of impre- uh, very pleasant kind of uh, slight hoarseness, they went away by themselves. A lot of people thought he had an operation, but he never did. And uh, so his voice became a lot cleaner. He was recording a lot more, so occasionally he made a lot more terrible records, um, but he also made a lot of his greatest records. And, and uh, he never lost his time. His sense of time was really incredible. When I started on the book, I remember the great uh, jazz saxophonist Jimmy Heath saying to me, oh, Bing Crosby, I want to read that. And I said, were you a Crosby fan? He said, well, he's he's an African-American musician. He says, well, Crosby was the only guy in the year, meaning the only white guy, because that's all that was on the air, who had time. So that's where we got the songs from. And uh, he, he never lost that ability. I, can I tell you a fast story about his sure. time? 
Yeah. Uh, when the, in the later years, in the seventies, um, American record companies wouldn't record him. He was very passe. Rock, you know, the Beatles and Bob Dylan and the Stones and all of that. Everything had changed, and. Uh, so Bing made a couple of records that he paid for himself and then leased uh, to small uh, uh, labels that were distributed. But in England, it, it, which remembered him from the war and which was much more loyal, he still remained very big. And he went over there routinely to record. And he made some very fine records um, for the major labels in in, in Britain. Um, at one of them, uh, the big band that was hired to accompany him consisted, you know, largely of young studio musicians who loved jazz, who spent all the time listening to Coltrane and Sonny Rollins and Miles Davis and so forth. And they had grown up hearing about Crosby and hearing their parents play him. And uh, the, the conductor of the orchestra, who was, I guess, about 28 or 29 at the time, was a tenor saxophone named Alan Cohn, not to be confused with the great American jazz saxophone Al Cohn. Anyway, Alan Cohn, uh, he said during the break, the guys were all talking. This thing is really something. They liked him personally, and he's really good. And he, they were stunned by how, how easily he could swing. So they decided to play a trick on him. Uh, the next take, the rhythm section was going to syncopate its you know, head off. The drummer was going to drop bombs. The bass player was going to do all kinds of stuff to see if they could knock him off his perch. And they couldn't. And when they were done, they did another take because the ensemble didn't sound great. But after that, uh, they walked over to Bing and said, Mr. Crosby, we have to tell you, we were really trying to, un you know, drive you crazy on that uh, to see if we could unseat you from the perfect time. And Bing said, I'll tell you why you couldn't. He said, all I listen for is the one. If I can hear the one, I don't care how much shit you put on top of it, it's not <laughs> going to bug me. <laughs> That's awesome. And yeah, he's described as having bassy time by uh, some... Uh, yeah, Jake Hanna, the great jazz drummer, said, he was telling me, he said, oh, Crosby had the best time of anybody. He had, he had time like Zoot Sims. He had times like, you know, he was mentioning all these great players. And then he sputtered and he said, let me just put it this way. He had bassy time because bassy is like, you know... He's like the metronome, a living metronome. Nobody has greater time than Count Basie. And so, yeah, so Bing had this incredible technical ability and this sense of effortlessness. Uh, he made everything look easy. One or two right. passes through a song, and he had it down, and then he could swing it. He could, he could, like you said, he did a wide range of songs. But this, he goes through this transition from the Prohibition era Bing, who's this jazz beau, who's a heavy drinker, who's mm -hmm. a, a feature performer in somebody else's group, and and there's a star, but not a huge star. Rudy Valley, for example, is kind of outshining him there for a couple of years. But then in the 30s, he ascends to this next level. And I want to emphasize, you know, the craft radio show that you mentioned. This is a show that got up to 50 million viewers a week, uh, listeners, not viewers, listeners, but I mean, yeah. but, but like that's, you know, close to getting the Beatles on Ed Sullivan audience every week for over a decade. And well, he, he didn't have those numbers for a decade, but he had he, he was top rated for ten years. Always in the top ten for ten years. That was amazing. And uh during the war, yes, it went up to fifty million. But uh and remember, we only had hundred and fifty people hundred and fifty million people living in the country. You know, at least got close to four hundred million. So 150 million. If you've got 50, you have a, a one third 
of every of the American public is listening. That's astounding. Yes, and and he uh, uh, takes on a, a mantle that you compare to President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who also spoke to the to the American public on the radio weekly, and and you know through Jack Capp's guidance, he's able to sort of become this everyman figure. And that's you know, right. Go ahead. The line about Crosby was, uh, everybody thinks that they sound like him in the shower. <laughs> and let's but nobody, hear, did, you know. Nobody could. And let's hear I remember after, after Bing died, uh, there, were, there were, you know, big tributes on all the networks because he had helped all the networks at one point to survive. But the, the most incredible one was on ABC. It was two hours long. William Holden narrated it. I wish you could get it on a DVD or something because it was truly brilliantly done. And it, they interviewed everybody who was alive who had worked with him. And one of the people was Rosemary Clooney, who uh, became a great friend to me and helped me to get this book done. Uh, and they said to Rosemary, well, was he really a great singer? And she looked at the interviewer as though he were insane. Yes, he was a very great singer. He had unbelievable pitch. He had the best low notes in the business and the best high notes when he was in really good voice. Uh, he had incredible time. And you know who his biggest, some of his biggest fans were through his whole career? Opera singers. Like Lisa Stevens, who worked with him in Going My Way. Um, he had a, he had a huge following in the opera world because he made it seem so easy. And he also had a huge admirer in Louis Armstrong. And you've got a quote from yeah. Louis where he says Bing was the boss of all singers. Right. Well, you know, and and when when uh, Bing was asked in the early fifties, uh, who who did you learn the most from? Bing's answer was, "I'm proud to be a lifelong member of uh, the congregation of Reverend Satchel now." Uh, uh, which was a nickname that Bob had back in the early days. Yeah, and, and so they had this mutual admiration society going on. And it's time to hear one more song, and this is uh, from the later 30s, but it's still fairly jazzy and definitely something I would throw in as a as a, a song from the Great American Songbook, the lyrics by Johnny Mercer. This is, You Must Have Been a Beautiful Baby. You must have been a beautiful baby you must have been a wonderful child When you were only starting to go to kindergarten I bet you drove the little boys wild And when it came to winning blue ribbons You must have shown the other kids how I can see the judge's eyes as they handed you the prize I bet you made the cutest bow Oh, you must have been. That was you must have been a beautiful baby. baby. Lyrics by uh, Johnny Mercer, who was somebody that being had kind of a protege of Bing Crosby, somebody who came to Hollywood and Bing Bing helped him out. And you just see from that song that even though he's been doing you know Sweet Leilani and the Hawaiian songs, and he's been doing Home on the Range and and Beautiful Dreamer with the Stephen Foster material, he can still swing a contemporary hit. Uh, yeah, just absolutely brilliantly. He was Ellington's favorite singer. Ellington said, "I'm not. I'm. You know, never going to hire a male vocalist until I can find someone who, who sounds like Crosby." And uh, that he didn't. Herb Jeffries, who I interviewed at length, 
joined the band, and uh, he was desperately trying not to sound like Bing, and they said, no, 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 that's what Duke wants. So, uh, you know, he recorded Flamingo uh, and uh, in a much deeper voice. I mean, he had his own style. You weren't going to confuse the two, but it was the Crosby style that influenced him, and that became one of Ellington's uh, biggest selling records and made it possible for him to, to record things like the suites and, uh, you know, concert pieces that uh, would not have make that kind of, uh, have those kind of sales. And, and w- another thing about the jazz singing, for anyone who thinks he lost it, a record that I, I unhesitatingly remember to, uh, recommend to everyone who's listening is the 1958 uh, Bing with a Beat, uh, which he recorded with the Bob Scobie band. And I think it's one of, it, uh, it's maybe Crosby's best uh, LP, and it has some of his very best work. And you compare, you say Bing is one of the four founders of modern American singing. And and yep. you said that the other founders are Bessie Smith, Ethel Waters, and Louis Armstrong. Talk a little bit about that foursome and Bing's place in it and what the other three contributed. Well, Waters is the one who is least remembered. Ironically, she and Bing died around the same time. In fact, uh, within the space of a, a couple of months, in in the fall of uh, late summer and fall of 1977, four of the most influential vocalists of the 20th century all died: uh, Bing, Ethel Waters, Maria Cow, poor Americans, I should say, Maria Cowles. Everyone thinks she was uh, Italian, but she was born in America, and Elvis Presley. And uh, uh, Ethel became so big as a, an actor, uh, as a Broadway star in, in, in film, that um, people forgot how important a vocalist she was. She really never recorded after 1939. Um, but she had uh, a, also a great time, perfect articulation. She was very good with lyrics. She could sing the, the most down-home, dirtiest, risque blues. She probably recorded more Dubé and Tangra blues records, than, and some of them are not double, they're single on Tangra uh, records than anybody, but she could sing anything, and she was the first, She her voice was so clear that uh, most uh, record artists didn't even think of her as being African-American, so she could get away with doing, you know, impersonations of Mae West and other white performers, which would have otherwise been considered, uh, you know, something you didn't do. Sophie Tucker, one of the biggest vaudeville stars uh, of all time, uh, was so knocked out by Ethel Waters, who was half her age, that she offered to pay her for her vocal lessons, and they became good friends. So Ethel uh, was a huge influence. She influenced Armstrong. Armstrong heard her when she toured New Orleans when he was still a kid, and or a teenager playing in the cabarets there. And, of course, Crosby was, was enthralled by her. Uh, he used to go up to Harlem to hear her whenever she was performing in New York. Uh, and then I think Bessie Smith is better known because she's truly a blues. She is the great, the empress of the blues. And, and then Armstrong and Crosby. And between the, the four of them, they really define the style of American music as being something very different from the operetta and the various kinds of folk styles that had dominated, say, in the 1890s and in the first 20 years of the 20th century. And there's another sort of foursome that you compare him to because of the magnitude of his stardom and the vehicles of his stardom, because he was 
first a recording star selling records, then a radio star doing live performances on the radio, and then a movie star. And all through the 30s, you know, he starts with shorts with Max Sinnott, and then he's doing not quite top-of-the-line pictures, but hit pictures that are somewhere between the B pictures and A pictures. And then by the 40s, he becomes an Oscar-winning absolute superstar. And Mm -hmm. you say that the only... Uh, stars that successfully followed that path were Frank Sinatra, Elvis Presley, and Barbara Streisand. I would add probably Doris Day too, but but uh, well, you know, nobody had nobody equal Crosby to any sense uh, in all four. I mean, Sinatra never made the top ten uh, box office attractions. Crosby broke the record; he was five years consecutively. Um, certainly, Streisand never did. Doris Day made it a few years, but not five. Um, and then nobody, including Sinatra, had as many hit records as Crosby over so long a time. Um, uh, you know, he created he created this template for that kind of a career for a singer to go from records and radio into the movies. But uh, and they followed him, and of course had enormous success. But. You know, the nobody really ever handled it quite the way he did. And Elvis, well, he died young, but but you know, when he went into movies, look at the compromises he had to make musically. It's not like he would, uh, you know, make five records for the Colonel and then turn around and make a rock and a killing rock and roll record. Um, you have to really hunt for the great tracks at this point. So, uh, you know, Crosby was always in charge. He took he took the recommendations of people he thought knew better than he did, like Jack Cap. Uh, when he saw that the, the success he was having, he figured, hell, Jack knows more about this than I do. If he thinks a song is good for me, I'll do it. But if he really believed in something, he would fight with Cap, as I detail at some length. Uh, one of the, a couple of their arguments, which were, happened to be tape recorded because the tapes were rolling, um, it was Crosby who said, "I want to start singing Irish songs," and Cap was opposed. And uh, in fact, the first uh, couple that he did, Cap didn't release for several weeks, and then finally he put it out. And sure enough, this time Crosby understood the commercial power of these records. So, and and also. It's an interesting thing about the ethnicity, because before the war, Bing was not known as an Irish performer. He was known as an, you know, an Anglo-American performer. The characters he played were always very Anglo. His father was from his his father's uh, uh, ancestors came from England, not from Ireland. Only his mother's came from Ireland. But when he saw what was going on with the the hatred of Jews, the hatred of blacks, the hatred of people just for who they were. He decided he wanted to join the ethnic, the minorities. And so he switched his persona entirely. And he did it. Suddenly, he, the names of his characters, instead of being, uh, you know, John Jones type names, uh, you get the Irish names. <laughs> and he starts playing Irish characters as he does in the in the two uh, Leo McCarry films, Going My Way and Bells of St. Mary. And he starts recording all kinds of Irish songs. And from that point on, he became thought of as an Irish-American singer. I'm glad you brought that up, because that shows, that points to Crosby's moral leadership during one of the darkest periods of history. And again, you know, the knock on him my entire life has, you know, 
revolved around this hollow man and abusive and 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 a fraud but reading these books that's definitely not the uh, impression you take away i mean i come away from this with this incredible admiration of bing crosby and i want to play the last song and, and show a different side of bing crosby this is his re-recording of uh, harry barris's wrap your troubles and dreams and this is an uh, a very famous outtake that was bootlegged immediately and we'll hear bing ad-libbing a little bit off color this is wrap your troubles and dreams that's made after all Life's really funny that way Sang the wrong melody We'll play it back See what it sounds like Hey, hey They cut out eight bars The dirty bastard And I didn't know which eight bars He was gonna cut Why don't somebody tell me These things around here Holy Christ, I'm going off my nuts. And that was being Crosby's uh, ad-libbing his way through Wrap Your Troubles and Dreams. I just wanted to play that for the audience because it's just so funny. And his you can really hear how brilliantly he can ad-lib and, and go with the flow. And just what a funny, likable guy he was. He he was he was very verbal, and um, you know think about it. Uh, most of the the really great performers, whether it's Louis Armstrong or Elvis Presley or Frank Sinatra, most of them had no education. They dropped out of high school. Uh, Bing is unique in that he had uh, you know two years of war. He was extremely well read. He understood, and and that's a, just a great example. Bing had the strange rule that when he was doing a take, and I think this came from the movies, because when you're making a film, as an actor, even if you screw up, it's not your call to stop the scene. It's for the director to do. And sometimes the director will let him play to see where it goes. Um, and uh, when he recorded, uh, and he made a mistake, and he said, oh, damn it, uh, you still have to do it unless he stopped singing until the end. Uh, and uh, there were actually quite a few of these these funny alternate takes where, uh, I mean, he did one with the Andrew sisters, and the Andrew, he started laughing, and the Andrew sisters started to laugh, and then all of a sudden they realized, we're not stopping, we're going to continue to make this record. And it's wonderful to listen to now, because they really caught off. But, you know, Bing, he, he just... He, he got inspired by these strange things, and he was great on it. I mean, he, nobody could have looked better than him. Um, you can see that in the way he deals with the hope, uh, some of the repartee in the, in the road movies. Some of those so-called ad-libs were actually written during rehearsals, but they were ad-libbed in the rehearsals. And uh, they said, wow, that's a great line. Keep it. And uh, some of the lines were, were genuine ad-libs. And the other, th the other thing I have to say is that Crosby was incredible at ad-libbing is Frank Capra once said uh, Crosby is he would put Crosby in the top ten of all movie actors because of the way he could improvise with props. And with that in mind, when you watch Crosby films, you you watch what he does with props. He's astonishing. If there's a ball in the room, he'll start flipping it. He'll he'll have both hands going. If he has drumsticks in his hand, he'll play. You know, or just the tapping. Um, he always he's always busy. He's always that business. 
And I, I feel like we've only scratched the surface in this delightful hour, and hopefully we can have you back on and talk more about the second book, Swinging on a Star, uh, in greater detail at some point. Gary Giddens, it's been a real treat to have you on the show. I enjoyed it, Nate. Thank you. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Monday, Nate and Ed Legg will be back with more discussion on Michelangelo Matos' book, Can't Slow Down, How 1984 Became Pop's Blockbuster Year. Next Thursday, we will rebroadcast Nate's 2020 interview with Gary Giddens about the second installment of his Bing Crosby biography book, Bing Crosby, Swinging on a Star, The War Years, 1940-1946. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.